Hello and welcome to the Sovereign Collective Podcast, where we bring you real raw truth for your self-empowerment. I'm your host, Sasha Calavota, and I believe that you can stand on your own two feet, but that you don't have to do it alone. I love learning from people who continually strive to raise the bar, to go against mainstream thinking, and who dare to question the general consensus. People are risking ridiculed or even risk the loss of their professional status as they bravely question the common narratives and challenge the rest of us to expand our minds and to reconsider what we think we already know. Join me in learning how to take control of your health and your mind so that you can have the energy to think more clearly and the confidence to step up and take responsibility for all aspects of your life. We promise to never censor here because I believe you are strong enough to hear the real raw truth to make up your own mind. If you like what you find here at the Sovereign Collective Podcast, then please share with your friends and family. And please also consider making a small donation on my Patreon page so that I can continue to bring you amazing content so that we can all create a better future. I so appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in. And now, on to the show. episode of the Sovereign Collective Podcast. I'm, I am with Dakota Cohen of Cohen Farm, and we're going to bring you some more real, raw, raw, real, raw truth for your self-empowerment. Dakota Cohen is the uh, co-owner of his family farm, and in 1988, his family recognized that they could no longer ignore the, decli- the declining health of their farm, of the land, and of the animals on that farm. So they made a decision to stop using chemicals on that land and to restore the soil to capture the water. And what has happened over the last 30 years on that land is amazing. You can go to his uh, website, Cohen, that's C-O-E-N farm.ca and see an aerial drone video of the farm. And what's really interesting is that there's a road and then there's their farm, this beautiful, lush, amazing farm. You can see that things are just thriving. You just want to be there. And then on the other side, is the complete opposite, right? It's basically what happens if you don't do what they're doing. So who is Dakota? Dakota is the co-author of Building Your Permaculture Property, a five-step process to design and develop land. He's an educator with Verge Permaculture, and he's also the co-owner of Cohen Farm, like I said, which is a 250-acre award-winning permaculture farm in Alberta, Canada. So thank you, Dakota, for being here. I'm super stoked to learn from you. I myself hold... I'm holding the vision more and more as every day goes on with the craziness in the world that I will be a part of this movement for my own self, because I really believe that what you're doing is necessary for the survival of all species on this planet and for the planet itself, if we want it to, unless, you know, unless it just decides to shrug us off because we've already, we've caused so much unnecessary harm. So I'm super stoked to learn from you today. So thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure to be here, Sasha. Thank you. So before we get into it, your award-winning farm. What did you win awards for? What's that for? So it, this was back in, uh, I think it was 2014. We won, it's called the, uh, the, the Pollinator Stewardship Award. And uh, uh, we were actually working with a, uh, um, I think he was a, 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 what's the people who study bugs, an entomologist, I think mm-hmm. is the name. Mm-hmm. And, and we were uh, trying to do a bunch of research, uh, like how can we, uh, this is right around the time of, of colony collapse disorder. That was like was was big in the news and so we were like trying to research how can we provide you know habitat uh, on the farm for for all kind of pollinators including honeybees and uh and as a result of some of the work that we did there um we uh we ended up getting nominated for uh this uh i believe it was a i think it's a north american award and and ended up winning it and 
and um, yeah, and there was just kind of a bunch of other little little things, but that was that was one of the bigger ones. Great nice, and yeah, we know that's pretty important to get the pollinators around, right? So yeah, awesome. So what was it like? So your your parents were originally conventional farmers. Yeah, like my my dad grew up on you know the like a standard you know hogs in barns, cows in feedlots, uh, you know herbicides and fertilizers on crops, uh, and and then he he bought our land in 1986. Uh, uh, he and he farmed kind of with his his family, and uh, like my mom and my dad got married in like 87. And uh, after a year of, of kind of seeing, uh, you know, the, my, mo- my mom was, she's like a hippie from BC and, and uh, um, she actually had an experience. She was pregnant with uh, my, one of my sisters at the time and she was going to give my dad lunch in the field and he was on a tractor spraying. And by the time she got from the truck to the sprayer, and like he, you know, he'd shut it off, but just as she's walking to the field, she started to feel lightheaded and, Ugh. She, you know, she's very sensitive to chemicals like, like I am. And uh, it was at that point where, you know, like a lot of the, the like, you know, just looking at the packaging and seeing like the skull and crossbones on it and just like, well, hold on a second, we're, we're spraying this and then we're going to eat it and we're going to feed it to our animals. So like there was, there was a lot of like questions, but again, this is back, this is in the eighties. Like th- there was no, there was no internet at this time. There were no I think we were the second farm in our county to transition to organics, um, and uh, and this was before I was even born. So mm-hmm. it was it was years ago, and and it was it was tough in, in those years. But thankfully, you know, more and more people are kind of seeing the the signs and are are making the transition themselves from conventional to or industrial to organic agriculture, and and thank goodness consumers are are interested in it as well. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so there's organic and then there's regenerative agriculture, which is a step, probably more than a step above organic. So yeah. did they have regen egg in the, in the, in their mind? Did that even that concept exist back then? Did they just go organic? So t- let's talk about the difference between organic agriculture, regenerative agriculture, and what that means for the land and the animals. Yeah. So I would say like the original kind of like, uh, the early adopters of organics, they were kind of, they were like the, the, just like the early adopters of, of regenerative agriculture. And, uh, and sadly, you know, since the, um, you know, the eighties, since when my parents, uh, like we, we were certified for years and we grew, you know, uh, certified organic pigs for, uh, Sunworks and which is one of, you know, Alberta's like largest, organic farm we used to grow grain for sunny boy cereal we used to do uh, organic hay to dairies like small scale dairies and things like that but there's no market for it and but um the sadly over the years the the organic standard has been has been slowly kind of chipped away uh and one of the reasons for that is because it's it's this it's a brand and uh and like the i think it's increasing at like 14 percent per year or something so it's it's a it's a pretty, you know, growing uh, business, and fourteen percent in in size, cost. What like just the it, oh, so in 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 like uh, in in like GDP or whatever. You okay. Want to call it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just the yeah profit, I guess, and 
and so as a result of that, it's attracted a lot of the people who, who aren't in it for kind of the, the principles and everything that is in it for the profits. And so the, the thing with organics is it's, it's a standard, right? And so there's like, there's guidelines and, but you as a producer can petition, you know, the certifying bodies to, dis, to change what it, it constitutes to be certified organic. So for example, like when my parents were first started, like you couldn't use, you know, antiparasiticals on your cows. You couldn't use Roundup on your farm. You couldn't use things like that. Those are all now allowed on certified organic farms. Roundup? Roundup. As long as it's not sprayed on the crop that's intended for sale. And, what? and in, 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 uh, in the United States, you can spray, uh, I think it was just this year or last year, um, the, the, you know, producers petitioned the certifying body saying, uh, hey, we need to be able to spray Roundup inside our greenhouses to keep uh, the, you know, weedy vegetation, the footpaths down, and, uh, and they won. Whoa. Yeah, and so, or like, you know, the, a lot of the vegetables grown in California are fertilized with human, raw human sewage. And it's, it's certified, or, or you, you can use certified organic uh, pesticides which typically are like, they're like, um, like copper sulfate or, um, uh, you know, typically they're like heavy metals, but they're, they're, they're organic because that's what the standard is. And, but you like, it can still come through the food. And so there's mm -hmm. um, like when, when um, with the, the current standard, it's, it's uh, what's the word for it? I think it's, it's, it's driven by kind of like, uh, like prescriptions as opposed to like outcomes. Right. And, and so people just, they just do the bare minimum to check the boxes. And, and so the whole thing has been bastardized and, 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 um, and it's, it's increasingly becoming watered down every, every year. And they just, people just petition uh, to change the standards and, and they vote. And so I like, I, within a few years, I, I guarantee it, it'll be uh, uh, genetically modified organisms will be allowed in cert as certified organic uh like things like CRISPR technology which is a new form of genetic engineering that allows uh scientists to claim that they can they can they're so accurate at, at editing genomes they can basically do it like on a single gene and so they're saying well this is this is so good that it it should be allowed to be organic so th this is this is the problem and so now the the, the response to this is well organics is it's been co-opted it's been greenwashed we need a new standard let's let's now become certified regenerative yeah and then you get this certification <laughs> and the regulation and all that crap yeah. right and, and then you get and people do just... the same thing is it'll, it'll it'll attract market share you know big business will get involved and the whole thing will get watered down so in in my opinion or uh, organics and certification is a means to an end uh like the food system that we need to move to is a bioregional uh like you know seasonal local system where certifiers are unnecessary because you you know the farmers that produce your food and if they're shysters you just like you don't buy from them anymore and and there's no way for them to hide within the market and and you know start another company somewhere else and rebrand all their stuff and keep doing it like there's uh, i think it was a couple of years ago there was a, a certified organic farmer in the united states who's who's got caught selling tens of millions of dollars worth of 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 you know, genetically modified industrial soy and corn and wheat into the certified organic market 
because he was just using his his certifying or his his certification as basically like, like a, as a as a laundering system. So he would buy cheap grain from other farmers, give them like a five percent premium to keep them to shut up, and then he would sell it for the three hundred percent premium that organics gets, and the whole market gets flooded. And so, like the the, the uh, me me personally, it's like we're never going to. Um, to out-certify that, that kind of stuff. It comes down to like consumer education and, um, and I think bioregional food systems. And there's bioregional food systems is essential for a lot of other reasons as well, but this is, that's a big one. Because um, even here in Alberta, like there's, there's uh, you know, I know, I know people that, that are, they're, they're good people. And this is probably the caveat to that is like, a lot of these farmers are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place um, because of a lot of other factors and I'm not, I'm not condoning what they're doing. I'm just, I'm having compassion for, for how difficult it is to be a farmer. Um, and because they're, I mean, I'm sure in their mind, they're just thinking, well, if, if I don't cheat, it's the only way I can get ahead. And it's, it's, it's really, um, it's really shitty. Uh, the, the situations that we're getting into. And I know good people in Alberta who, who, um, like a lot of my customers who, who buy from us, they tell me horror stories about, you know, some of the big names here in Alberta. And it's really sad because I know these people personally and I know they're not bad people, but it's like, why, <laughs> you know, why are you doing, why are you advertising that you do this or, or, you know, they'll, they'll kind of start out really good. And then, and then, you know, five years later, they just, you know, they stop, you know, giving their, they stop using organic grain but everybody still thinks that they're organic. And right. it's like, no, <laughs> they, they stopped that five years ago and they just never bothered to tell anybody. Right. So, <clears throat> oh, it's too bad. Sellouts everywhere, right? There's just yeah. like supplement industry, the farm industry is kind of everywhere. There's just, you know, that's, that's sad. It's because you go in there for the right reasons in the beginning, right? And you have these lofty ideals yeah. and they, I guess it get, they get eroded when, I don't know if there's too many regulations or, too, or whatever, just to make a buck. And it's harder and harder these days. It, well, it is. And, and but I, I do think a, a lot of it comes down to like our, um, like our culture around like business and, um, and particularly within farming, it's like, there's this, there's this stigma that like, you know, you, you can't, uh, like you can't be profitable if you're a farmer or like if, if especially if you're a regenerative farmer, it's like, if, if you're making money, you're bad. But it's like money isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, it's it's just it's a tool, and in a lot of cases, it's being used poorly. But um, like the if if we as farmers kind of take all this shit on we, uh, to ourselves, and we we pigeonhole ourselves to the point where we can't do anything, and then we still have to pay you know our mortgages and you know our taxes and our insurance, but we can't do it. It's like eventually you're going to get hit, hit the point where you 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 will break and. And it's like, you, you're gonna, if, if the choice becomes between, you know, lying and, you know, feeding your kids, you're gonna lie. And, and so it's like, it's, we really need to be careful not to get to that point as, as farmers. And sadly, I see it all the time with, with, um, you know, people who are, who are even in the regenerative farming industry is, is that they, they, they don't have a, a kind of solid uh, business background and they burn out. And by that time, they just don't give a shit anymore. Fair enough. And uh, and so I've been really lucky to, you know, to be farming with my parents and and to to have some of that breathing room. So I've been able to make mistakes and get to the point where I realized, like, you know what, if if I can't do this profitably within the current context of of 
you know, what our society defines as its economic system, I'm not going to do it because it's like, it's a race to the bottom. It's like, there's, there's all these people out there, like, like just, just, just burning themselves out and, uh, and, and wrecking the planet and, you know, getting customers pissed off. And it's like, it doesn't, nobody benefits. Like we're, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So anyways, that was kind of a, no, but it's true. And, but Zach Bush talks about that, right. Where he talks about, you have to let the ground lie, but once you, once you start creating more and once you start getting better quality stuff, you'll make, you'll grow more per acre. So you'll have a greater productivity. You'll have, you'll be able to charge more, but the more that there's demand, the more accessible it's going to be, but we have to demand this food or, and we have to get out there and, and demand that people do this quality food. So then it becomes more accessible Yep. Because it's not such a unique product that you're the only, like you, as, as far as I know, you're the only regenerative agriculture farm in Alberta. Is that true? Or are there others? Uh, I mean, there, there are, there are others. Like I, I would um, not to brag, but I, I think we are, we are doing uh, a lot of stuff that nobody else in Alberta is doing, but there's, there's a lot of other fantastic farms yeah. who are doing other things as well. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and it is, it is growing. Like there's, there's like so many of my, um, like the, the funnily enough, like with this, this um, kind of lockdown stuff, uh, people are, and like the, the toilet paper shortage, I think really, <laughs> really got people re realizing, you know, what would happen if this was something that actually mattered. And, uh, and so like for the first time ever, like everybody I know is sold out. Uh, and they were sold out like months ago, which is wow. fantastic yeah. because like you said, like once, once demand increases, then it's going to incentivize more farmers to come in and and we can kind of we can grow this thing and we can get you know the efficiencies of scale and and, and all those kinds of things um but um yeah it's it, it I, i'm definitely it, as as shitty as things are there is so much hope and and I, I i want to be really clear about that but i also think it's important to to call a spade a spade and because um, otherwise we're like we, we know where this ends like it's it's if, if we run out of we run out of topsoil which they say there's 60 years left or if we run out of biodiversity which you know the, the background rate of extinction is like is like 100 to you know two or 300 times the the you know the the, uh, the, the standard kind of background levels uh where we're running out of water like if, if any one of those things runs out like we're done we're toast and and it's like you know we we think you know wars over oil have been brutal. Like when when there's food shortages and there's water shortages, like we don't want to get to that point, and we, and we will. It it is a matter of of when, not if. And so, but that being said, I also know we can we can repair our water cycles. I we can repair our so our our soil health cycles. We can bring back biodiversity. We've done all these things on our farm. Uh, we have springs on our farm. I, there's a creek that, that, that we've created on our farm that didn't exist before in like three or four years. And, and knowing what I know now, it's like we, we can do it even faster now. And there's all these stories all around the world. So there's, there's nothing to worry about. We just, we need to, uh, I think as a society, like reprioritize what's important to us, get these corrupt government uh, and and you know big business that are in bed with each other. I get, a, a friend of mine says like we don't live in a free market capitalistic culture. Not we not. live in government funded corporate socialism. Mm -hmm. That's the current system. It's, it's corporate socialism, 
and and uh, and so if if we if we got rid of that stuff, if if big business and governments weren't subsidizing fake meat and industrial agriculture and you know GMO canola, that there would be my food would be half the price of the garbage in the in the in the grocery stores. But even right now, the like we're we're getting closer to kind of neck and neck. But if they took away the subsidies, our food's actually cheaper. Wow. And that's without factoring in the externalities of increased, uh, you know, our, the, our on, the, on the the health system, the increase on our you know water purifications for our cities, all those different things. Like there's, uh, so there's 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 no no doubt that we can we can do this stuff. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's a must. It's a must. So yep. let's talk. Yeah, okay. So we've got organic. Organic. The standard's oh, yeah. been dropping, dropping, dropping. But from what I understand about organic farming, it has nothing to do with the outcomes. It has nothing to do with soil health. It has to do with, you can use this spray, but you can't use that spray from what I've heard. Yeah, it's, it's nothing just, about rebuilding the soil. So let it, what are the main elements of regenerative? Like, so what's the main goal of regenerative agriculture? What are the main elements of it? And what what are your goals? Because I know for one thing, it's, it's the myth of, I, from what I understand, I think the the myth of how long it takes to rebuild topsoil, it's not true. We can rebuild a lot faster. And like you said, regenerating waterways. And I think from your video on that, that video on your website, you're also talking about how your neighbor's wells are filling up yeah. because of what you're doing on the farm. Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. massive. So what are the main things that you're looking for for Regen Egg? So the, uh, the, uh, the best way to look at that, and I've, I've kind of given a bit of teaser to that, but it's like, if you look at agriculture as a, as a whole, and, and, and the important thing to realize about agriculture is like, is like our, si our society or civilization is so advanced now, like we, we kind of take it for granted that, that without agriculture, there is no civilization. Because like, if, if, if we don't have people who are, who are good enough at growing a surplus of like our food, fibers, uh, you know, fuels and kind of pharmaceuticals, which all come from uh, from the land. If we don't have people who can, who can produce enough of a surplus that frees up other people to focus on other things, we don't have a civilization. You know, where and and so agriculture is is really important <laughs> for us to be able having you know a Zoom call right now and and that stuff. Okay, so what is what does agriculture depend upon? Kind of base principles. Well, there's four ingredients. There's sunlight, there's water, there's soil, and there's organisms, plants and animals. Those are like the, the four fundamental, if you don't have those, and every single one of them is, is, is um, they're all interdependent and they're all essential. So if anyone's missing, you can't produce a crop. And, and no matter how good one is, you're always gonna be limited by your kind of weakest ingredient. So like you could have the best topsoil in the world and you live in the sunniest climate and have all kinds of biodiversity. But if you don't have any water, mm -hmm. you can't grow anything. And the same thing for any of those other ingredients. So for me, the, um, uh, the regenerative agriculture is this idea of, uh, okay, those four ingredients, those are, the, those are the kind of the energy and the materials that, that are, are required for this system of agriculture to, to operate. And so a regenerative system is one that increases, improves, renews, you know, restores, uh, um, you know, something that gets, it, it, it increases its own sources of energy materials. That's what regenerative is. So it's, 
it's creating more topsoil, more biodiversity, it's harvesting more, uh, increasing the capacity of harvesting more sunlight, and it's, in, it's increasing the amount of water uh, that it's able to, to cycle and, and store. So now when we look at, okay, well, what about sustainable? Okay, a sustainable system is something that just, you know, maintains uh, or sustains its own levels of, of you know, so own sources of energy materials. Okay, so we know that our, we've lost, you know, thousands of years of topsoil in the last, you know, 200 years. Uh, we know that we're, we're at, uh, you know, we're losing biodiversity at, at a really rapid rate. We know that we're not harvesting solar energy as efficiently as we could, and we know that our aquifers are depleting. So can we just sustain the current system at that level? No, we can't, we have to increase it. And of course the other system is, is what we're currently in, which is actually a degenerative system, which is one that, that you know, destroys or eliminates its own sources of energy materials. So like our entire agriculture right now is, is a degenerative system. It's, it's, it's cutting you know, the branch that it's actually, that's, that's it's standing on. And everybody's talking, well, we need a sustainable agricultural system. It's like, no, <laughs> we, we, can't, we can't do sustainable. Uh, we, we need to have a regenerative system. And so that's, that's kind of the main, so organics is really kind of this, it's really this, this, it was based on this idea of sustainable, about conservation, doing less bad. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's really based upon this idea that humans are separate from the natural world uh, and, and that we're somehow bad and, um, and that, the, you know, the best thing that we can do is just kind of do less bad versus the degenerative system is based on this idea that humans are also separate from the natural world, but that we're above it. We're, we're better than it. You know, we were, we were, you know, created in the image of God and, and, you know, everything that flieth in the air or crawleth on the earth or swimmeth in the sea is, is under our dominion. It's like, and so what would you do if, if that's, what you believed or is it is it more about stewardship is it is it dominion or stewardship and so this this regenerative agricultural movement uh, is is really based on this the paradigm that humans are a part of the natural world uh, and we're not we're not above or below it we are we are connected we're interdependent with everything else and so our survival we're, we're not doing this to save the whales or to, we're doing it to save ourselves we are in, it's enlightened self-interest and if we don't do it we're screwed and, and, and like the, once we, we kind of, you know, we get that home, it, we, it, it's, it's a huge paradigm shift. And, and so that, that's like the main difference between like, we started out with industrial agriculture, then we moved to like organic or sustainable agriculture. That's not working. We, we need to kind of advance and, and go through another paradigm shift, which is what this regenerative paradigm is all about. How long has the, the idea of this paradigm been around? Because it's a term that I've only heard in the last couple of years, but I assume it's been around for longer than that for those that are more in tune with the agricultural world. You know, I, I, I don't actually know when it, when it came up. Like, I think the first time I heard it would have been, um, it was after I got involved in permaculture, which was 2012. Because at, at that time, like sustainable was like, kind of like, it was the big you know, the big thing. Yeah. And now again, sadly, that's been, you know, greenwashed and, and, you know, now actually anytime you see the world sustainable, it's actually like, <laughs> you know, it's like agenda 21 type stuff. Yeah. Like, you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> oh, that's benevolent. Come on, yeah. come on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, um, 
uh, I, I actually don't know when, uh, where it was coined, but, but it's, you, you, it's a subtle difference, but you can just like, for me, when, when I, when I uh, first heard it kind of described that way, it was, it was just a huge shift. It was like, that's exactly, it was like, we're, we're actually, you, you know, you've, you've, you've heard the, the saying, it's like, you know, you, you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take. And so it's like, like we've, we've set our sights on like such a low goal of like sustainable and even if we even if we were achieving that, which we're not, like it wouldn't be enough. And so we we need to reach higher. We need to get to this this idea that that you know we can we can regrow a thousand years with the topsoil in a few years. Right. Easy. We have to. We don't we, have. To. And we we have to. So we we have no choice. But I I also like a really important piece to say to drive this home is like it's we have to because it's because we depend upon it. It's like, yes, we need to save the whales and we need to save the rainforest, but we need to do that because it's, a, because without it, we will die. Yeah. And, and there's, there's like, a, that's another subtle difference that, that I, I've, I've kind of seen in a lot of like the, um, you know, like the, the conservation or kind of the, you know, the hippie, <laughs> hippie movement or the, uh, as, as some of my friends have heard it described as like butterfly catchers. <laughs> <laughs> or um, or uh, uh, what is it? Watermelon environmentalists, where they're they're green on the outside and red wow. on the inside. <laughs> uh, red meaning communist, wow. and and so the the, the um, when we uh, when we really get past this idea of of like self interest as being more than just like you know self uh, or, or or ethics like morality, doing the right thing is not about self-sacrifice. It's not about, you know, selfishness. It's, it, it's, it's like enlightened self-interest. It's realizing that like, you can't pour from an empty cup and coming back to what you, you kind of said in the introduction is like, the, um, like humans are a keystone species on this planet. It's like, yes, we are destroying the planet. And, uh, but one of the sayings in permaculture is like the problem is a solution. So we can be just as regenerative as we are destructive. Absolutely. And, and so if, if you, if you look at it that way, like the, the, the healthier we are, the, the more, the more profitable we are, the, the, the greater our well-being, the more capacity we have to give and the better we're going to be at, at regenerating these plant, the ecosystems of the planet. And so it's, it's kind of like, you know, the, the idea of, of, uh, it's kind of a shitty analogy now, but on a, uh, on an airplane, when, if you're crashing, you know, they say, put yeah. your mask on first, right? It's kind of the, the same idea with this. Right. Okay, cool. Unless it's a cloth mask, then don't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's a few comments I want. I'm going to try to refrain from making comments because there's agenda 2030 comments that I could make, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't guarantee it. But for now, I'm not. Um, one thing that stood out. So I just finished watching Kiss the Ground the other day. You, you know that. So, yeah. and one thing that I was, which was interesting is watching their fight with predators. And so in your video, in your drone video, you talk about how this is the natural way that the, the land would want to be. It'd want to be a grassland. It would, and so you don't fight that. You work with what it naturally wants to be. So yeah. another part of the natural way of things is predators. So what is the way to deal with predators in a way that is, fits the paradigm? Absolutely. Uh, so really good, really good question. And this actually kind of um, one of the uh, uh, 
like one of the, like a fundamental practice within kind of regenerative agriculture is this idea of like rotational grazing, you know, which is, a, you know, typical, you know, livestock management for any, you know, grazing a ruminant animal like cattle or sheep or goats or something like that, or even pigs or chickens is, you know, you keep them in like a barn or a fixed pen for a whole year and they just, they just go around mm. and, you know, constantly eating grass and things like that. The problem with that is they, they, um, uh, you know, because their their dinner plate is the same place that they sleep, it's the same place that they urinate, the same place they defecate. Um, there's a lot of of you know parasite transmission, and um, and so like historically, you know, going back, you know, uh, you know before kind of colonization, before we had you know fences and things like that, uh, you know the you know buffalo or the um, you know the the wildebeest in in Africa, all these animals they rotated. And, and the reason they rotated was several. One is because if they didn't, they would get sick from parasites and die. But they would also, like they're were, they were rotating around because they're being chased by predators. Mm. Uh, and so they had to kind of stay on the move and, and keep going. And there's a really great uh, example of this in, in Yellowstone Natural, National Park where there was a lot of, of you know, uh, river and kind of riparian health degradation that was happening because they, were, they took all the wolves out because you know, predators are bad and they'll, you know, they'll right. kill the deer. And so hunters didn't like them. And so they, they basically exterminated all the wolves, but then because there was no predators, the elk and the deer and the moose, they had nothing to run from. And so they all just, they gathered around like the best areas around the creeks and they just destroyed the ecosystems. Mm. And so when they brought the wolves back and they chased the animals back up on the hills and kind of kept them in order and, and the ecosystem just bounced back. So <clears throat> The like predators, it, one of the principles in permaculture is, is every element serves some kind of a function, re regardless of whether you understand it or you like it or not. So sadly, yes, mosquitoes serve some kind of a function. You know, wasps <laughs> serve some kind of a function, even though I've seen like high level scientific papers trying to prove that, <laughs> that if you it could exterminate all mosquitoes, nothing bad would happen. What about the bats? The bats eat the mosquitoes. Exactly. It's just, it's just hubris. That it's I don't know. Wasps. I still am curious about the wasps, but mosquitoes for sure. They're, they're a food group for some. Yeah. And, and so the, the, like with, with predators, like their role in the ecosystem is to kind of keep everything in balance, stop the populations from, from going too high or too low. And, uh, and so like, that's a pretty broad, you know, level understanding of, of like the role of, of predators and ecosystems but when it comes to like our farm the um, like the uh, like part of it is is the um, our strategy to be kind of dealing with predators and, and in our area we don't have a lot of them like coyotes and foxes are kind of our and, and raptors are like our, our biggest predators mm -hmm. and the way that we have dealt with them is we just we try to actually maximize habitat for them to, to kind of get their prey somewhere else. So I'll, I'll give you examples like uh, like a, a single nest of red-tailed hawks will eat uh, up to 500 gophers, you know, Richardson's ground squirrels a year um, as, as, they're, as they're feeding the young. So like, you know, a gopher weighs, you know, like maybe a pound and a half, something like that. And a chicken weighs like four or five pounds. So it's like, that would be a, like a hundred chickens. That's how many how many uh, wow. chickens a hawk would have to eat to uh, to be able to kind of if there are no gophers, and so one of the things that that happens in with with agriculture is like we we only see kind of one thing at a time and and 
and because we're, uh, you know, there's this saying by Chief Dan George, was like, that's that what you don't understand, you will fear, and that what you fear, you will destroy. And so we see, you know, the gophers, and they're, they're eating our crop, or they're making our fields bumpy. And so what do we do? We go in and we, we poison them, we shoot them, we trap them, and we eliminate them. But that sets off you know, a, a chain reaction. So now there's nothing for the hawks to eat. And so the hawks start to eat our chickens and then we get mad at them. And so we kill the hawks, but it's like, well, but, but now there's nothing to control the rabbits anymore either. And so, and you know, nature pours a vacuum. And so this thing keep, keep, keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And, um, and so like, for example, with the coyote, the, there's a really great book by uh, Dan Flores called uh, Coyote America. And uh, in, in this book, he kind of documents how over the last 200 years, the United States government has, has like m murdered like hundreds of thousands of these coyotes every single year for 200 years. Wow. And, and the coyotes have, have done nothing but increase in number. Wow. So when, when Europeans got here, coyotes were, were or coyotes were a, um, like, they were like a, uh, a kind of, you know, a, a no-name, you know, uh, not, not even a, a big player in the scene. And I think they only lived in, in like the southern part of, of um, the United States in like Mexico. And, and, but despite all this pressure, because we killed all the wolves, the coyotes have expanded. Now uh, there's, there's established coyote packs in every single city in North America. Yeah, we hear them so, behind, live on a dog park hill. We hear them in the middle of the night sometimes, right yeah. behind our house. Yeah, and so like we're, we're never going to win. <laughs> we're never going to kill all the predators. So the, the, the idea is, as, as like farmers is, is for us, is like we, we try, to, try to realize that, that they, they serve a purpose, even if, we, even if we don't understand it, that they serve a purpose and, and we try to maintain excuse me, some kind of a balance. And so like... For example, like if a fox comes into our yard, uh, like the first time, I'll, like I'll, I'll take a shot at it to scare it. And if, if it comes back again, you know, I'll, I'll take a shot at it and I'll sick my dog and I'll chase it away. And if it comes back again, like a third time, I have shot and killed foxes that come into the yard. And when that happens, and every time I've done this, the, 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 the foxes that come in the yard multiple times, they typically, they're really sick. They have mange, they're desperate. Oh. Um, and so, but versus otherwise, we, I see coyotes all the time out in our fields. They don't bother us. They're out hunting gophers really? and they're awesome. Like I, I leave them alone, but if, if they, if they kind of come in, so you can actually condition the animals to stay outside of your yard. Um, another really simple thing is like, you know, leaving, uh, leaving tall trees on your farm so that hawks have a good place to perch so that they can, it's really easy for them to pick off the gophers out in the field versus, you know, coming after your chickens. Or one of the things that we've also do is we integrate our pigs and our chickens and our cows together in one system. And so, and, and since doing that, we haven't had a single fatality from, from hawks from doing that versus, you know, before that, when they were like, the chickens were located only like a hundred meters away, we would, we would have hawks, even though we had like aerial fencing and so they would like, they would come down and kill chickens and rip their heads off and eat their brains. Wow. wow. And, but be, because the chickens are now with our, our pigs and our cows, the hawks must be like afraid that there's, you know, they're, they're terrified of the pigs or something because they're bigger animals. So, um, you know, those are just some examples of, of how it's like, like really being humble and, and realizing that these, these animals, they serve a function and, and to try to, to find a way to cohabitate with them and, uh, and just getting creative 
with uh, with some of this stuff, and 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 it works. We haven't had any any issues. Cool, nice. Okay, so another thing I know, which is big in Regen Egg, is the cover cropping and multiple cover crops, and that's something I'm curious how you do that because when I've I've been on other town hall calls learning about the cover cropping. But I, I can understand more southerly climates where you can grow other things at other times. Of year, but I would even like to apply that on my garden in my backyard. But once I harvest everything, what the heck can I plant in my garden to actually grow at that stage? Yes. So how do you do cover cropping in colder environments? And if you could first explain cover cropping and why you want to do it in the first place. Totally. So it's a really good, really good question. And actually, before I describe cover cropping, I'm going to describe the, what's known as like the five principles of soil health. Okay. And so this is something that uh, I believe it was uh, Jay Fuhrer. He's a, an NRCS um, uh, soil health guy in, in the United, United States and, and guys like Gabe Brown who really kind of helped popularize it. But the, these five soil health principles are, um, number one is you want to minimize stress. So like th that could be, you know, mechanical tillage. It could be like, um, you know, uh, um, animal, you know, grazing or like, like trampling. It could be herbicides. It could be human foot traffic. It's like, if you want to have healthy soil, it, it, you don't need to, you don't want to eliminate stress because just like, you know, lifting weights, mm -hmm. you, you actually need stress, a certain amount of stress in your system. It's like through hormesis, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And yeah. so um, optimizing disturbance or optimizing stress. That's the first principle. The, the second principle is keeping the ground covered. And the reason you want to keep the ground covered is, uh, you know, the uh, solar radiation has UV in it. UV sterilizes things, which means it kills them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all know that, you know, soil is, is like, there's, there's more organisms in a teaspoon of healthy soil than there are people on the planet. And so if, if that soil isn't covered with some kind of a mulch or a living plant, the sunlight can get at it and it sterilizes it and it kills it. Uh, the other reason you want to keep it covered is uh, when rain falls on unprotected soil, it, it has a huge amount of uh, force. It's like, it's basically like, you know, like bullets hitting the soil. And if there's nothing to kind of, you know, buffer that, whether it's a plant leaf that slows it down or some kind of a mulch that can, it's like a shock absorber, the, the rain can actually pick up soil particles and it can create erosion and you can lose a huge amount of topsoil. So we want to, optimize disturbance, keep the soil covered. The third soil health principle is we want to keep a living root in the ground as long as possible. I, ideally 365 if you can. And the reason for that is, as everybody knows, the, the photosynthetic process is the ability to take, you know, carbon dioxide and sunlight and turn it into sugar and oxygen. And, and but as plants do that, the sugars that they're creating, more than half of the sugars that a plant produces, it, it doesn't use for itself. It dumps it into the soil through something called uh, plant root exudates. And it's literally feeding those, those organisms in the soil around its roots because the, and they, they set up this kind of like stock exchange where the, the plant gives the microorganisms sugars and then the, the organisms bring in minerals uh, they bring in, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, heavy uh, um, uh, you know, mag manganese and things like that. And, and different organisms do different things and the plant literally exchanges and sets up these networks with them. And so um, 
that, but as it's doing that, that's what builds topsoil. That's how we get carbon out of the air and into the soil. Without a living root in the ground, you're not taking that carbon dioxide and using sunlight and dumping sugars, which is a carbon base, into the soil. So that's why you want to have a living root in the ground as long as possible. Because if you're not, you're not optimizing um, that carbon capture and you're not as productive as you could be. Fourth principle is you want to have a diversity of uh, flora. So basically as many different kinds of plants as possible. And the reason for that is different plants do different things. You know, there's, there's tap-rooted plants, there's netted rooted plants, there's plants that cover the ground, there's plants that photosynthesize longer than others, there's plants that, that only have uh, relationships with certain kinds of organisms. And so the, the greater the diversity of plants, the, the more solar uh, energy you can capture and the more minerals you can pull up from deeper down. Like an oak tree has a taproot that can go down like 100 feet into the ground. Wow. And, and, it, and every year when its leaves drops, it's, it's dumping you know, minerals from deep, deep down in the subsoils on the surface that other plants could not reach. Mm-hmm. So you want to have a diversity of, of, of flora. And the second one is you want to have a diversity of fauna uh, because animals also bring something into the system they help speed up the nutri- the, uh, the breakdown of, of plant material, which increases, uh, you know, the, um, so that plants aren't building up and oxidizing, which basically means they're not decomposing. They're actually literally rusting and the, and the minerals are kind of just going off in the air and, 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 and being vaporized. <clears throat> so that those, those principles, again, are uh, we want to optimize disturbance. We want to keep the ground covered. We want to keep a living root in the ground as long as possible. We want to uh, have, a, have a diversity of flora and diversity of fauna. Cover crops do all four, four of those. The only one that they don't do is they don't bring in a bunch of animals. Right. Because if, if you've got a cover crop, you're, you're actually, and actually before I do that, a cover crop is literally just a, a bunch of different plants um, you know, sometimes they're called cocktail cover crops. You know, it's, it can be, you know, anywhere from two or three to 20 different species of plants that all do different things that you're um, planting to, um, you know, to, 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 to optimize disturbance, to keep the ground covered, to capture solar energy by having a living root in the ground as long as possible and having as many different kinds of plants as you can. And, and when, we, when you do that, plus bringing in animals, that's how you regenerate soil is by following those, those five soil health principles. And as I said, like that's cover crops do all four of those wow. things really well. So an, another way to think about this is something called the uh, successional cycle, which is this idea that, you know, plant communities or, or a community of organisms goes from like pioneer organisms, which are like really tough and hardy and they're the first organisms that come on after some kind of a massive disturbance event, like a fire or a flood or a volcano. Those are the first ones are the pioneers. They're thorny, they're aggressive. They can you know, live under um, you know, really harsh conditions. But then as those organisms progress, you know, they gradually get more and more diverse. They, they're longer lived. Uh, they, um, they're, they're not as aggressive anymore. They t- tend to get larger until you get to what's known as a climax ecosystem. And so, the, that process, depending where you are in the world, from like disturbance to climax ecosystem can take, you know, decades to centuries. And, but the idea is like the, the first organisms, the plants that come up, they're like annual plants. 
they grow really fast, they produce a ton of seed and they grow more of themselves and they, and they generate biomass, they cover the soil, they do all those things. But then the next guys come up and they're like biennials, they live for two years and then you get your perennials and then they, they, they get longer and longer lived. So with cover crops, it's this idea that you can compress ecological or successional time from 10 years with the plants, what would happen naturally and you can do it in one year. Because you can plant annuals, you can plant biennials, you can plant perennials, you can plant, you know, tapered species, you can plant, you can plant all those different guys. And normally in a normal ecosystem, they would take, you know, 10, 15 years to, for their natural germination conditions to be reached in the soil or for birds to fly in and drop them. You can just do it all in one. And you can, you can take that, you can fast track that the, the ecological section, getting us closer to a climax ecosystem. So that's the, the, the big driver behind um, cover crops. So in terms of how you can, what you can do is a really simple thing in your, in your garden. One of the ones that I recommend for folks is, uh, particularly in cold climates, is something called crimson clover. Okay. So it is a, it's an annual clover, uh, meaning it, it, it grows flowers and produces seed in the first year, then it dies and it, and it won't, won't come back. And so what, what I do in my gardens is, uh, you know, typically in like, you know, kind of late July, early August, you know, when, when everything is full grown in your garden, you can just literally just broadcast like a good little grass seeder, uh, you know, one of those, you know, Scott's kind of lawn seeders. And in like a, you know, my garden's 10,000 square feet and you would put on, what would it be like a, like a quarter pound or something. It's a tiny amount. 10,000 square feet, a quarter pound? That's, a, that's uh, well, the, yeah, like typically you put on, would it be, be like, uh, you know, four, four or five pounds to the acre. And okay. so there's, um, say if, if it was, if it was four pounds to the acre, there's 40,000 40, square feet roughly in an acre. So about a quarter pound in right. 10,000 square feet, which is like what, like, that's a typical size garden, or at least for. Um, Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> that, like a quarter a quarter acre garden but even you could do it even less than that but just that's like the idea of the seed rate and you, you broadcast it on the surface and and like that's like minimum you, you could just do that no matter what your if you got bare soil um, ideally you do like a little bit of mulch or you'd like I irrigate right afterwards yeah and um and because like everything in your garden's full grown or, or is almost full grown by the uh the cover crop will start to germinate and by the time you harvest your start harvesting your crops, you know later in you know in the end of August, uh, early September, the, the the cover crop will already be kind of six or seven inches tall, and it's not competing with anything you're doing, uh, but it's called interplanting, and uh, it's it's a really simple technique. And this this crimson clover fixes like 150 pounds of nitrogen per acre. Wow. Uh, which like th th that's enough nitrogen to produce any crop. Well, apart from like corn or something like that. But even then, it's if you've got decent soil, that that would be enough to grow kind of any any crop you'd want. But it also produces a ton of biomass, and as uh, it has really beautiful flowers and, and things like that. But it also it, in our climate, it doesn't reseed itself. Even when it flowers, it doesn't it reseed. It okay. doesn't reseed itself because it's a it's a tropical plant. Um, oh. And so I, I've I've been using it for years. I've never I've never had it over winter, even though it flowers. It's these beautiful like called crimson clover because it's like yeah, dark yeah. dark red it's like blood red flowers are beautiful wow 
Um, so that, that's, that's by far the simplest cover crop that you can you can put. And just one one plant, that's okay. You don't have to have a diversity. I, I mean, I, ideally, you would go more, but it gets more complicated the um, kind of the more diverse you get. And so, I actually have a video on my YouTube channel that shows like the kind of like master level of cover cropping that you can get. Where I actually uh, like I'll I'll plant you know 10, 15 things in my garden, um, like. Uh, kind of like like we plant our garden typically May fifteenth, and so like on May first or even earlier, I'll I'll till my garden and plant you know my all this cover crop everywhere in my garden, and then it germinates and, and it's about you know four or five inches tall by the time May fifteenth comes along, and then I actually rototill strips. Oh wow! Kind of where I want to plant, and then I've got cover crop basically my footpaths, and then I actually scythe it with a little scythe all summer long, and I'll get four, five, six cuts out of this cover crop that I can use as mulch from, if that, that's if you, if you really want to fast track soil health. Yeah. Um, Cause again, like you, you can, you can like most plants, they grow once and they die. And that's one year with, with cover crops. If they're, if you cut them, you can do like three, four, five years worth of biomass production in a single year. And, and then you put that and you put the mulch where you, you clip it and then it goes into your garden. It, just it, it could, it could stay on your footpaths oh. or it could, uh, I actually use it to mulch like my, my, my garden crops once they get big enough. Uh, so like basically my footpaths are like, you know, 20, 30 inches wide or something like that. And I have a scythe on either way and then, and then rake them back around my, you know, my carrots or my, yeah. um, my onions or whatever it is. And I, I've got a really good video about okay. um, I'm gonna watch like how we use cover crops in our garden and it goes through like every single step okay. from like my how I till how I seed the different kinds of seed the ratios that I use how I scythe it and then it shows it like in the growing season and like so like to put this in perspective that the garden that you see there I've got another video that talks about like I actually have a soil health test that that anybody can do with nothing more than a shovel and their their eyes and, and like how you can like look for metrics that to prove whether or not your soil is kind of going up or going down. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the place where I, I do that, that, that garden uh, would be 10 years ago, that garden was like pure clay because we moved onto this yard site. And so like there was hunks, you know, watermelon sized clods of clay in this wow. garden. And now it's like, you can't find clay. I can, I can dig down two feet and there is no clay. We've, we've turned it into topsoil right. with nothing more than, you know, cover crops and, and the fifth principle, which is like livestock manure or compost. Right. When you, when you do those, with those two things, like cover crops and some kind of a livestock manure or compost, it's like you can, you can repair any kind of, you can turn sand, pure sand into amazing soil, or you can turn pure clay into amazing soil. It's the same process. So you actually till your soil. I do, which, which okay. Is... <laughs> so we're learn about that because I was I I am under the impression that we don't want to till. It's about no till, no spray, no like. So yeah. tell me about the tilling. So this, and this kind of comes back to um, this kind of sustainable paradigm of like nature is delicate and like <laughs> you know we we don't want to hurt it. And it's like like the the you know there's there's this this uh, you know kind of thing going around right now saying that Earth is in the sixth mass extinction event. Yeah. Right. And it's true. Like the, the, based on the research I've seen, uh, the, um, you know, and, and a, like a mass extinction event is something where, uh, at least 50% of the species, not just like the numbers, but 50% of all species on the planet at that time have gone extinct. 
That's happened at least five times and apparently it's happening right now. So that is like incredibly hopeful for two reasons. One is because, well, the planet's already gone extinct five times before and it keeps coming back. You know, it's been hit by asteroids. It's been hit by super volcanoes. It's been hit by pole reversals. It's been hit by, you know, algae sucking all the oxygen out of the air when they die. And, and upwards of like 90% of all the species just dying overnight. And, but, you know, fast forward a million years through that successional cycle and we have the ecosystems that, we, that we're looking at today. At one point, this planet didn't even exist. So the, the earth is anti-fragile. It, it, it actually, up to a certain amount of disturbance, it actually speeds things up. And even with a catastrophic amount of disturbance, it still comes back. And so with, with, with tillage, the, the way to think about it is, is like, it's, it's like lifting weights. Like if, if you go and you lift a thousand or, or it's like if you go and you lift like the heaviest weight you can lift, whatever it's, you know, 200, 300 pounds for your deadlift and you do, you know, a thousand reps of that, you'll, you'll wreck yourself. But if you lift, you know, it's the heaviest thing you can lift, you know, two or three times and then you wait three or four days and then you lift the heaviest thing you can lift, that's how you can, you can build muscle. And so uh, disturbance is the same thing. When, when the buffalo, uh, you know, the, the settlers described, early settlers in North America, they described herds of buffalo that would pass in front of a wagon train for three days and three nights. And by the time they were gone, the land was a moonscape. Like it was just, it was, it was completely wow. black. Um, or there's, uh, there's stories of passenger pigeons, which I think there's there like 7 billion passenger pigeons in North America when the settlers got here. Now they're extinct. But when, when those passenger pigeons would fly through the sky, they would literally blot out the sun. Right. And, and when they would rest in a forest overnight, the, the, the weight of the birds would tear the limbs off of trees. They were so heavy. Wow. In the morning, there'd be a foot of, of pigeon shit on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And so like, the, the nature has evolved with these in, intensive disturbance events and then long rest periods. To recover. That's actually how you how you can really fast track things. So, the I use tillage in the same way that you know weightlifters lift weights. I I come in, I do the most amount of disturbance I possibly can for the shortest period of time, and then I give it a long recovery. And so I actually use like, you know, there's a saying, "Death feeds life." It's it's literally true. I I come in and I I, I create a massive disturbance of it, and I I yeah I kill earthworms and I. I break up mycorrhizal fungi and all these different things, and it releases huge amounts of nutrients. But I don't kill all of them, and I, and I don't I don't do it for ten thousand acres. I do it on on you know ten thousand square feet, and and there's enough of an area around it that it can recolonize the soil, and it and it feeds off that life, and it creates this explosion of of productivity in my, in my garden, and um and then and then I I don't do any tillage for for a year. Right. And, and I, I, I don't have weed problems. I don't um, like, I, like, you know, most years I don't even irrigate. And, and this is in our climate. And I, get, I don't know if you, if you watch my YouTube videos, like we're, we're growing five gallon buckets out of a single potato hill. You know, we've got, uh, <laughs> we've got beets that are like, you know, bigger than my head or Colorado bigger than my head. Um, it, it works. And so that this, sadly, there's, there's this, this myth about you know, tillage is bad. And it's like, it depends. Because if, if, if you don't have some kind of a disturbance event, the, the ecosystem, like your garden will just turn into a forest in our, like, you have to have whether you're using mulch, 
or you're using you know, herbicide or you're using tillage, something needs to keep that ecosystem from, from expanding through onto its perennial stage and on into a forest. And so I use tillage because it's, it's super simple and annual plants are, are adapted to tillage. And, um, and it's actually funny, a lot of the, uh, like the whole no-till agriculture, which was, which was purely just this chemo a thing to sell farmers herbicides. Um, now it's, it's, it's failing now and they're coming with all kinds of problems and farmers are going back to tilling again. Really? Because that bush talks a lot about the tilling and I stopped tilling because I thought there was supposed to be like a, a layered aspect to the soil and there's different life and different layers. So what I started doing is just, I mulch everything and I just try to, and then I just dig where I need to dig, like digging up stuff. Yeah. Or, but and, and you, you can do that. Like, like the mulch is the kind of disturbance event. And on a, on a small scale, you can, you can totally do that. But like when, um, uh, like another, another really probably one of the best kind of justifications for tillage is, is reading settler accounts of how indigenous people managed land. It's like for, for in the, you know, in, in Australia, uh, they, they had, you know, thousands of acres of something called yam daisy that the indigenous people had literally planted and intended for that for hundreds if not thousands of years and when the settlers got there they described scenes of of lines of women uh you know stretched as far as the eye could i could see going through these pastures with these digging sticks and they would they would they would flip over the soil and keep it nice and aerated and they described the topsoil as this like light fluffy stuff or the indigenous people here in North America used fire was was one of the things they used for disturbance. Right. Um, That's what uh, my parents did in Europe too. I think they they lit fires. I yeah. think it was a common thing to be yeah. doing. Yeah. And, and there, there are there are problems with like like they, it all kind of comes down to context. It's like in in, in certain situations um, like having too much tillage is not a good thing. Having too much fire is not a good thing. Uh, having too much mulch can be, can be a bad thing in certain, like, for example, say you lived in the North or the West coast and you have a really, really, uh, wet climate using a lot of mulch there. will it'll destroy you because it's like slug habitat. Wow. Uh, okay. That's happening to me. Yeah. I'm getting lots of slugs. I need ducks. I have lots of slugs and it's, and so you think that's coming from the mulch, huh? That's interesting. For sure. Cause it, it's keeping it wet all the time. And so, and like, like I've actually, I've overdone it in my garden with mulch too. Um, because like if the ground always stays wet, the, the vegetables aren't used to that and they'll go moldy. They'll like, the onions will rot in the ground or you'll get mildew and stuff. And so um, I've actually come back to, I've, I've kind of gone the whole full circle. Like I was like, you know, tillage is totally bad. It's, it's, you know, we don't want to do that. And, and now I've come back. It's like, no, it's a tool. And when it's used properly, right. Um, and, uh, it's, it's super effective. Right. Okay. And, and you can like, like my, my, um, my, my mom raised, uh, you know, six kids like, like purely out of her own garden and, wow. uh, and she used a full tillage system. And I'm not saying it's like, that's not right. That's not good. Where you're tilling like, you know, once a week and you're keeping the soil black, that's where I have oh, a problem. Wow. Right. With, but on a, on a small scale, I, it's, um, I think it's a fantastic tool. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Okay. So one other thing that I want to talk about is let's talk about all the sectors that would be affected, affected positively through the use through the not use, but through the adoption of regenerative agriculture on a larger scale. Like what I always tell people, and I love what you say in your video is eat the change you want to see in the world. Cause that's what I tell people so much. Like, so my background is nutrition. 
And I always talk about like, you change what you eat, you support different businesses, you change your mental and physical capacity, you support your local farmers and you change your local economy. Like there's so many aspects that just that one habit can -hmm. change on a massive scale. So let's talk about that. What are the changes that you see that would come out of expanding the regenerative agriculture movement and practice? Well, I mean, it's like, I don't think everything is like, it'd probably be a shorter list to just say what wouldn't be <laughs> affected by it. Um, because again, like coming back to what I said earlier is this idea that like without agriculture, there is no stabilization. And and so like the, if, if we want to have a regenerative, uh, you know, uh, anti-fragile civilization, our agriculture has to be that first. Uh, and so, but I mean, like just, you know, to, to riff off some of the things that you've mentioned, it's like, like, you know, there's personal health. It's like by, by eating this way, it, it, it literally, um, you, you ha- your body has the ability to heal itself. Just like, just like an ecosystem can heal itself, your body can too. You know, what is it? Within five to seven years, every cell in your body has been regenerated. Like you're not the same person anymore. And, and, and part of that regeneration process is, is governed by the vitamins and minerals that you're consuming. And that comes through your food. So by eating healthier food that has more vitamins and minerals, your body has the ability to, to better repair itself. And so then it's like, if that affects, you know, your mental health, then it, like, then it scales up to, you know, our communities, our communities are more resilient. We're not having, you know, massive suicides. We're not having, uh, you know, crippling illnesses that, that, that make more of a greater percentage of the population dependent upon healthcare. Um, the you know it would scale up to there there'd be less wars because because when when people are when their well-being increases like you know <clears throat> going around killing people isn't isn't a, a I'm sure it's not a particularly fun yeah. thing to do <laughs> and, and and so like if 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 we if if we're healthy like all wars in the past have been over resources. And, and so like, if, if we don't, if we're not living in the scarcity mindset, we wouldn't need to have wars anymore. And I mean, so it's like the, the whole thing, it's, it's everything. If, 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 we, if we adopted this regenerative agriculture, um, there's, there's a, it's, it's an un, unlimited and like unknowable amount of, of well-being is, is, is what we could, what we stand to gain. And if we don't, we're not gonna be here. Like, Again, coming back to this this you know mass extinction event, uh, like how many civilizations have gone extinct? Like it's the hubris that we that we think that we've been here for, um, you know the our, our current kind of you know Western civilization is a few hundred years old. This this uh, and and like there have been civilization like um, Jared Diamond's book Collapse. He studied. The, uh, the Greenland Norse, the uh, Anasazi, the uh, Pitcairn Islanders, the Easter Islanders, and um, the Mayas. And, and those are five civilizations that some of them had, had lived for uh, several hundred years. Some of them had lived for several thousand years. And as a result of the way they were interacting with their environment, primarily, the, it, was, it was environmental degradation was the main thing. And the, and their refusal to change when they when they saw that that something was happening to their environment and there was other factors but those are the two main ones, that was the driving cause of of, of the collapse of these these empires, and uh, or or at least civilizations and so that that can't happen to us, it's happened in the past 
um, and and the the planet will be fine. You know, just like you know the it's been gone extinct. You know, at least five times in the past, it's going to come back, and it's going to come back even better than than before. Like it like it has always done. We, there's ecosystems are always complexing. It's just we might not be here on the next iteration, and so this really comes down to is like like do do we want to stay here? Do we want to continue you know, living on this planet? And I do. I it's it's this is like despite all the the you know shittiness in the world right now, it's like the, there's still so much abundance and and beauty in the world, and 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 humans have so much to contribute to that. Like it's we're not just kind of the we're not just these parasites. We are keystone species. We're like those wolves in in the Yellowstone Park. You know we we can we can be that organism that helps all of the organisms to flourish. Right. Yeah. I don't, and I don't think we've ever fully explored how abundantly and lightly at the same time we can tread on this planet. We've, we've just, we have a history of pillage and plunder and we don't learn from history. It's apparent in all sorts of ways. We just, we don't learn. We don't learn from fallen civilizations. We don't learn from past war crimes. We don't learn from, you know, the dust bowls. Like we don't learn. We we just no. we just keep repeating the same ridiculous mistakes over and over again. Oh. Yeah. So and another thing, what I like I is also supporting that the the big the big egg and big pharma, which have <laughs> gone together, right? Like yeah. that's also another thing that you won't support, and that will lead to the we we allowed those those megacorps to be in existence. And we also yeah. have the power to remove them if we stop yeah. supporting them. So, the, you know, yeah. there's all these environmentalists out there, you know, instituting these carbon tax or saying we have to do this and that for the environment, but just just change what's in your pantry. Change yeah. what's in your and, that's, and they, then boom. Yeah, and that's that's what I love about like, permaculture as a as a philosophy is, is, the, is not about pointing the finger at somebody else, it's about looking in the mirror and realizing it's like like that you're part of the problem and and the way to start is with yourself it's in your own backyard you know producing your own food and taking responsibility for your own needs and then and kind of scaling that out and and when we do that like you like you said the you know the the, the world's largest agricultural company monsanto and the world's largest pharmaceutical company just became one <laughs> a couple right. of years ago and like if, if if there's one thing and, and i know zach bush talks a lot about this but like one of the the big kind of um the kind of sort of damocles that's like just dangling by a thread over our heads right now is, is glyphosate or roundup this is the this is the world's most prevalent herbicide over i believe it's it's 14 million kilograms of this herbicide are applied globally every year and it's increasing billion or billion billion b billion with a b, with a b. yeah and, and and the the current if you look at the MSDS safety sheet on, on glyphosate or Roundup, uh, the, the lethal dose for an adult human is, is half a liter, half a kilogram. And so we're, we're literally applying like enough, enough glyphosate to kill every living human on this planet several times over every single year. Glyphosate has a half-life of 25 years in the soil. It is patented as a pipe cleaner. It chelates minerals. It, it binds minerals in the soil and, and, in, and in industrial pipes. That's where it was first designed. It is an antibiotic. It's patented as an antibiotic. It's patented 
as a, um, a, uh, a herbicide, which is what it's typically being used on. on uh, that's, that's why it's so prevalent. But it's also patented uh, as a biocide, literally as something that kills all life. Right. And, and so it's like, and that was the same company that created DDT and Agent Orange and PCBs and dioxin and aspartame, the same company that created those things, Monsanto also created or, or holds the patent for um, for this 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 chemical. And it and so if if you don't like that, if you don't like feeling sick, uh, if you don't like your gastrointestinal problems, and there's a direct correlation between the glyphosate and leaky gut and and all these you know in, these inflammation diseases. If you don't like you know, the, the cancer that's running rampant in our societies right now, or the dementia, as Zach Bush's show, there's a correlation between Roundup and dementia. Like, we need to stop that. Like, if, if, you're, if you're buying food in the grocery store that, that, you know, is cheap, that's what makes it cheap. That's what allows farmers to farm 30,000 acres and just apply one thing and it kills everything. It, it's really difficult. It takes, takes a lot of time and care to manage, you know, even a few hundred acres, and 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 th that that means that we need to go from you know two or three percent of the population as farmers right now back to thirty percent, which, which is what it was in the nineteen thirties, uh, because we need and we need to revalue the 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 skill and the the, the time and the effort that goes into that. Uh, you know, I, I think as a as a nation, Canada pays you know some of the lowest prices for food in terms of, you know, the, their, um, their total earnings uh, of any other culture on the planet. And I'm not saying that, like, this is not just about money here. Like, we, actually, we also need to redefine our entire economic system and move away from a fiat currency and stuff like that. But, like, like food is, is absolutely essential, as you said, and, and it would have massive sweeping changes. And, and sadly, and this is probably one of the, the, the biggest reasons why food is so important now is, it, it's clear now that that food is like the last frontier for control. Mm. It's like we look at the fake meats, the the you know milk that is you know being synthesized from you know human DNA and and the, the I don't even know about that. Oh, um, really? oh, it's 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 getting bad. Like the it's 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 it is apparently it's like the fastest growing industry, despite the fact that nobody wants to eat it because all the governments are just pumping money. I got our government uh, in it was Canada, Alberta, it was like a $150 million grant to build some, you know, fake burger plant down in Calgary or something. Or, um, and so the, like the, the, um, it's like the beyond meat burgers. I yes, always wondered about that, that beyond meat. It's like, look, it's in all the health food stores. I'm like, who the hell is backing this? This is not real food. This is not a veggie burger. This is no. disgusting. What is in here? No. There's something behind that. Yeah. And, and, and all, all that stuff is it's, it's like every, the, if, if it's, if you're, if you're not like as bad as organics is at least and like, yes, they are using Roundup like in certain places on organic farms, but they're not, they're not applying it directly to the seed crop, like the, the wheat or the barley or the peas. They're not applying it like a week before harvest. Right. And this is the main difference. Like, like farmers have been using herbicides for, you know, a hundred years on their, on their crops. And, and I'm not, not condoning that we, we need to get away from that. But, but the big change that happened, I think was in the 1990s 
was they started using it as a desiccant, which, which basically, as opposed, to, as opposed to swathing these crops and then letting them dry in you know, those windrows in the fields, yeah. farmers would now just go through a field and spray this Roundup on the crop, kill it while it was standing, which allowed it to dry faster. And it also pulls moisture out because it's a chelator. Mm. But the thing is like, now that that Roundup wasn't being used to kill weeds, it was being used to kill the plant itself. And there hasn't, there hasn't been as much time. There hasn't been rain to wash it off. It's, it's in the seed. And this is, this is fascinating. If, if you grow barley for beer, like malt barley, you have to sign a contract, an affidavit swearing that you did not use Roundup as a desiccant because Roundup inhibits germination. It actually right. makes the seed sterile. And, and if you want to grow beer, it has to go through uh, the malting process. It has right. to sprout. And so basically there's two things, drink beer, even if it's not organic, because it's <laughs> no Roundup on it. But two is like basically every, everything else, if it's not organic, it's been, it's more than likely been, been desiccated with Roundup. Yeah. I, I know lots of friends who they'll, they'll, they have, you know, terrible gluten insensitivities. They go to Europe where Roundup has been banned for a few years. They can eat pastries like nobody's business. Yeah. And yet like sourdough has an effect on that as well. But um, so it's like, what percentage of the population in Canada has some kind of a gastrointestinal disease? Oh, massive. I mean, that's what I work with. I work in nutrition. Yeah. I, it's what I talk about all day long, constantly. It's, it's absolutely. I would say more do than don't by far. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy what we're doing to ourselves. And we voluntarily do this stuff. So, yeah. you know, the people that care about the environment, you got to look what's in your cupboard. It's not just about everything out there and it's not about all this green technology or whatever it's actually what you're actually eating it comes down to basics 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 right and where yeah. are you buying it from and who yeah. are you supporting that kind of thing yeah and, and that's what's terrifying is like if, if we if this whole impossible burger stuff and you know the the, the plant-based foods agendas which are being just propagated like i i don't if i have to sit through another i i, I speak at a lot of conferences and stuff like the agriculture and like the the and like you know, the, the climate change or global warming is one of the hot topics. And I don't, I don't want to get into that because I think it's, <laughs> it's, I, I uh, the, the climate's always been changing and, and there's pretty clear evidence that CO2 isn't, is actually a, a, a lag factor, a temperature is a, a, a lead factor to CO2 and different things like that. But the, the, the way that the, this, the, the, the problem is carbon and the solution that's being proposed is, well, animals, grazing animals which have been around for for hundreds of, of thousands of years they're the problem right the fact that there was a hundred million bison right. in north america and now there's like a hundred and you know 20 million beef right and, but but now the beef are the problem it's it's utterly ridiculous but there's like phd level scientists that are talking about how you know livestock are the biggest contributor to and the, yeah part of it's because they're in feedlots and things like that yeah factory just, farming yeah yeah but but the solution is we need to go plant-based we need to go plant-based right. so, well, how are we going to grow all these crops well it's going right. to be no-till genetic modification and and we're going to use we're going to you know turn these peas and soybeans into fake meats and so like like these these environmentalists which they're they're well-meaning um, and because there, there are problems in the world right now, there are environmental problems that need to be addressed. But if we don't look at the big picture and, and realize that, that like there are psychopaths and kind of foxes guarding the hen house right now, 
that have have that have been and have and and continue or will continue to take advantage of us if we're not educated. Yeah. Um, it's going to get real bad. I mean, agenda twenty thirty, right? One of the agendas is no natural food by twenty thirty, and I heard in another interview that that's been moved up to twenty twenty five. Yeah. Well, so, they're, they're they're talking about a, a meat tax in uh, the UK right now. Oh my goodness! As well as a as well as a carbon tax, and um, and so like, but like the, the and there's other things with 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 the mass hysteria that um, is happening right now with our our misunderstanding of of you know the germ theory and stuff like that is very soon. All it would take is for some kind of a swine flu or a you know right. avian flu or whatever. And now, well, it's these little farmers, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the wet markets in China where they're, they're eating these, these wild animals. This is why we have to have hermetically sealed barns and the chickens have to be fed antibiotics and it has to be all controlled and scientific. It's these, these small farmers are little factories for, for all these diseases. It's not safe. And it's, 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 it's a hop, it's a hop, skip and a jump. It's, it's illegal, either bureaucratically or literally illegal for people like, like, like us to, to do what we're doing. And, and so like right now, two or 3% of the population in Canada is farmers of that, a fraction of that population thinks like I do They're, you know, the, the average size farm is, is like 1200 acres. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's full, full chemical. So like the change isn't going to happen from the farmers. There's, there's not like, a, a, you know, a, a tenth or a hundredth of a percent isn't enough to create a paradigm shift within a culture. This, this is going to come from consumers. And, but all it takes is, is yeah, it's three or 4% of the population to, to demand and, and to refuse to, to, um, to put up with this crap anymore and things will shift and, and, and we'll continue to see, you know, as, as demand increases, supply will increase to meet that demand. A lot of the farmers that I know that are fully industrial, they don't like what they're doing. They're trapped. They've got mortgages. And if you've got a mortgage, you have to have insurance. And if you have crop insurance, and if you have crop insurance, you have to spray this stuff. You have to use Roundup. You have to use fungicides. You have to use their, their brand of seed. They're, they're, they're slaves. We, we live in a basically a feudal agricultural system right now. It's not necessarily the farmer's fault. So as consumers, we have a lot more free time you have a lot more free time as, than farmers do. You have a lot more disposable income that, than farmers, and and that's where that shift is going to come from. And so it's 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 fantastic that you're you're you know doing this podcast, and I really appreciate you having me on to um, to talk about some of this stuff because it, it's super complex and it's and um, and, <laughs> and it's important. If we get this wrong, like we're done, civilization's <laughs> over. Yeah, not a lot of wiggle room. Not a lot. Okay, I have one last question quickly. So what about people like me? Like finally, my husband said the other day, finally he's like, I'm on a farm. I'm like, what? Because I've been talking about, I want to get out of the city. I want to get some land. I want to do this. I want to do this. But how does one do this? How does one make the switch? Like, how do you, how do you not bite off more than you can chew? And like any tips for the, you know, eager <laughs> new farmer? So there's, there's um, the good thing about not having any farming experience is that you don't have any bad habits. Mm, okay. So that, that's the good thing. The, the, the bad news is 
uh, is that the, um, there's, uh, the, the way that I, I describe it is, is like people who, who like, you know, they've, they've watched a lot of videos about like farming and like they've read, you know, all Joel Salton's books and things like that. And, they, and they're <laughs> super pumped and they want to go farm. Yeah. And, and they think they can do it. They can just, you know, quit their job and, and like, you know, yes. start a farm right away and just be profitable within the first year. So like that would be the same logic as somebody who watched all of the seasons of Grey's Anatomy and maybe, you know, some of the, the seasons of ER or whatever like that and thinking that you could become a brain surgeon. Like it's, it's literally that complex. And yeah. so the, there's, uh, it's totally doable, but there's, you know, there's the, the saying that it takes 10,000 hours to become a master of something. Right. And, and farming is like a multiple like farming, especially the regenerative system is, is a multidisciplinary because you need to learn, uh, you know, crops, pasture, livestock. Uh, you need to learn how to be a mechanic, how to, how to weld, how to be a carpenter, how to be a veterinarian and how to be an accountant. And I mean, if, you, if you're already a small business owner, you can, you can, uh, there are a lot of crossover skills to this. And actually as a, um, somebody in nutrition, you'll be light years ahead of, of a lot of other farmers because like the same principles in human health transfer into animal health. And so um, the, the good news is like 90% of the shit that you, if you get a book like on how to keep bees, right. you know, 10 pages is about how to keep bees. And the last, you know, 90 pages of a hundred page book is how to treat them for all the diseases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's like, if, if you just support their health, they don't have right. diseases. Right. Um, yeah. So the, the, the tip that I, that I give people is, it's like, don't, don't quit your job right away. Like find a way to transition into it. It'll take minimum five years before you're, um, you're even, you know, before you even break even. Uh, and the other thing would be like, try to find some kind of a, um, if, if you're going to move into a, like a farming community, like find a mentor or, um, you know, if it's possible to, you know, woof on certain farms or mm. uh, be, become, be a willing, uh, was it willing worker on organic farms, uh, or take, uh, you know, apprenticeships or, or things like that on other farms so that you can learn from other people's mistakes before you start your own. And then just kind of, I mean, but I've also heard other people who just like, they, they quit everything and they just jump in with both feet and yeah, they make a ton of mistakes and, and they get there, but there's, it's like most people are either short on time or money. And so it's like, if, if you have money and, and you're, you're, you can afford to, you know, make some, Ten twenty thousand dollar mistakes, which you will, make, <laughs> you will make, and I've I've made them. Uh, then yeah, you can jump in with both feet. Um, but if you're if you if you don't, you it'll take. What's the saying? It's you can it can be uh, fast, cheap, or 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 good. And it's like and you you can only pick two of those. And 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 like farming is no different. So, that's kind of the 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 sad thing however like i said you you don't have a lot of the bad habits and and things like that that are that the current industrial agricultural system has and 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 i know i know people that have moved from the city and with zero farming experience and they're running some of the best regenerative farms that i know of oh amazing and 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 but they 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 you know had financial help they had um uh and and they had the time to kind of make the mistakes and they allowed themselves that kind of five year grace wow. period. Yeah. So. Cool. Cool. Well, I was watching, we also watched the biggest little farm. Well, finished watching it the other day. Yeah. And 
that was like seven years of hardships and crazy things. And the one, the one, their mentor had said that it takes seven years to build that ecosystem where everything really starts yeah. working together. I thought that was interesting. That's, that's a long time when you're. Yeah, easy, easily. And, and, but the, but the, the really exciting thing is like, it, it, it like when, when, when it's the, um, uh, like we're, we're seeing this on our farm now. And I've heard a lot of people say it's like that kind of five to seven year period. And at a certain point, like you hit like a threshold in the ecosystem, something just like clicks. Yeah. And at that point, you like it just becomes effort. Like you can just you can throw a tree in the ground and it grows. Mm-hmm. You can throw seed anywhere and it just it just pops out of the ground. Animals start coming. Like it's and and it becomes exponential. It's just it, it's slow, but it, it it is it's it's tough to get to that point. Right. But it it, it makes it that much more worthwhile. Oh, and um, and and like put it this another way is like okay, well. It would so it would take seven years to fix everything. Like like you know, we talked about how agriculture is like it's like it's the 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 root or the it would, it would solve so many problems. So right. seven years, right? Seven years, yeah, and we could fix every problem on the planet. Imagine, Imagine. <laughs> worth it. It's worth it. Absolutely. Okay, awesome, Dakota. So how can more people? How can people find out about you? You got your website, CohenFarm.ca. Yeah, that's the that's the best place. Uh, all the links to like I've got my own podcast. I've got there's a book coming out in in uh, in a few months. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel. You've got a newsletter. Um, all the stuff I do blogs and things like that. It's it's all linked to from from the CohenFarm.ca. Awesome. And for people that are in the area, they can come to your farm for a tour. We, we do, uh, we do uh, like a one private tour or sorry, one free kind of uh, open farm tour a year that, that uh, people can come to. I have had to start to charge for tours just because I, I I put so much, like it takes five hours to like, to show people around. And, and so what I do is, is I charge my hourly consulting rate. You can bring as many people as you want and uh, you can split the cost however you want. And, and I'll, um, I'll show you around the farm and, and that can be scheduled at any time. Um, so yeah, the, our, our, we have a free farm tour on the Saturday closest to the, the solstice, the okay. summer solstice. So like this year it's coming up. I think it is, I think it's the 21st this, this year. The winter solstice you're saying? Oh, Sorry, the, summer, the, solstice. Summer, summer, summer solstice. Yeah. Okay. Summer. The summer solstice. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, oh, it's coming it's up. Like, okay. Like June 19th or 20th or 25th. Okay one of those days and uh the details are on the website website there hopefully um well the, I'll, i'm gonna push my parents this year if, if there's still lockdowns we're gonna do it civil disobedience style <laughs> style but um that we, we did actually have to, have to skip this is the first year in like seven years we did have a farm tour this year uh, because yeah. well because you know with the new restrictions that came out today they say you don't have to wear masks on farms hey there's oh, really? there you go <clears throat> yeah really. okay okay well awesome Dakota I super appreciate your time this is super enlightening I hope everybody enjoyed this as much as I did I this is something I really want to learn more and more because I've always appreciated eating good food and I want to be part of the change of creating that good yeah. food I don't know if I'm going to get there but right now I'm going to hold it in my and <laughs> well, we, we we need we need a lot more uh more farmers we need to go from three to thirty percent so that's a lot. That's, that yeah. is, that's, that's a big increase, but you know, I think there is, there's a shift, right? There's a shift. People are leaving the city and I think they are realizing, wow, we're really dependent on a lot of things. You turn a few things off and we're screwed. 
So to have some sustainability in there, like I know sustainability is a low term, but just for them to be self-reliant and to yeah. also build their skill sets. Because yeah. a lot of people, you turn everything off and they're useless. They're, they're not yeah. going to be able to last very long. So yeah. I think there is a shift that way. So hopefully we do get to that 30%. That would look a lot different. That would, that would be amazing. But it's also decentralizing those big massive farms, right? And creating more of those smaller family yeah. farms. Yeah. We, need a, we need a family on every quarter section minimum. Wow. That's, that's, my, uh, that's my goal. And, and, and we're like my, my colleagues and I were actively, we've got uh, a plan to kind of to take over the world with at least, at least Alberta with, uh, with that system. And uh, uh, we don't know how we're going to do it quite yet, but, but there's guys like Zach Bush that are doing it. And, and um, so that's, there's, there's so many amazing people. This is, we're just getting on the ground floor, like the, this stuff is taking off. And, and that's the real big takeaway that I hope people you know, walk away with this from is, is the hope of this. It's like, there's the, the, you know, it's always, always darkest before the dawn. <laughs> right, right. The darkness is revealed before the light comes through, right? And just, right. yes, yes, let's hold that vision. Okay, okay, awesome, Dakota. I really appreciate your time. And um, maybe we'll do this again one day. And I hope yeah, to visit your farm too. one day as well. So thank you very much. Take care, Sasha. Yeah.